This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I know this is hard for you, but winter is coming. We know what's coming with it. We can't face it alone. Despite Jon Snow's warning, did you watch Game of Thrones alone? The record viewership for the HBO drama indicates maybe not. But did you use someone else's login and password to watch the show? You might be surprised to learn that HBO doesn't care. In fact, HBO encourages it. That's just one of the lessons in the book Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives, by Michael Heller and James Salzman. And Professor Heller of Columbia Law School joins me now. Why the title Mine, one of the first words babies speak? How does that relate to adults? Well, let me give you an example. Actually, I was with my kids in the park, and they were fighting over a little toy shovel. And one of them said, mine, I had it first. And the other said, no, I'm holding on to it. And I realized that that little fight that they had is actually very revealing about how ownership works, not just for kids, but for us grown-ups as well. So when my daughter was saying, I had it first, first in time, and my son was saying, I'm holding on to it, possession is nine-tenths of the law, they were using two of just six simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. What's remarkable is that businesses and governments use those exact same stories, the exact same mine and first, to basically allocate all the resources that we all fight about. This is how we decide climate change. This is how we decide wealth inequality. And it's also how we get in line as adults for everything that we all want. Let's start with the axiom, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And you say, not really. There are hundreds of ownership disputes that we're involved in every day without realizing it. Part of why a maxim like possession is nine-tenths of the law is so powerful is that it feels natural and just and right. But once you understand this, it's just a maxim. What savvy businesses can do is turn those upside down. So let me give you an example. Say you click buy now on Amazon to download a book or a movie. When you click buy now, you have a little shopping cart. You have the buy now button. It feels like you own that. And actually, studies have shown that 85% of people believe that buying something online is the same as buying a physical copy of the book or the DVD. And that's just not true. So what Amazon, Apple, and other online retailers realize that they can mobilize our deep, our childhood instincts about possession, but actually sell us something quite different and much less. So it's the case today that Apple or Amazon can, and actually they have, deleted content right off of people's devices, and they have the right to do so. There's a big and growing gap between what you feel like you own and what you actually own online. And the online retailers, they get an extra unearned premium on every single one of our downloads. We, the customers, are not always right. So in other words, you might buy a book for your iPad or your Kindle and later find out that the book has disappeared from your online library, the book you thought you had purchased. Isn't that crazy? It doesn't happen very often. But actually, some years ago, Amazon deleted 1984 by George Orwell right off of people's devices which is actually kind of amazing that that was exactly what Big Brother would do. There was a licensing dispute, and it turned out they couldn't sell that version of the book. But there have been a number of cases where Apple and Amazon and the other retailers have essentially bricked your device. You still have the hardware, you still have the shell of your cell phone, but they can basically lock you out of your content in ways that people would be surprised. You feel like you own it. But the reality today is that possession is much more like one-tenth of the law when you're online. 
Amazon and Apple, do they have provisions in their terms of agreement that allow them to do that, those terms of agreement that no one ever reads? I imagine they do. I'm saying I imagine they do because literally no one ever reads them. <laughs> I'm a, I, I teach this stuff and I've never read them. And what's amazing is in those terms of service that they call them, they can put a lot of stuff in there that you would just never, no one ever knows. No one ever reads. They're designed to be unintelligible. And all everyone does is just click the little I agree button or click the buy now button. And by doing so, the version of ownership that you get online is a very highly limited, non-transferable license that gives them a lot of control over what you can do with what you buy. What about subscription services like HBO and Netflix? It's become acceptable to borrow someone's login and password and watch shows when you're not paying for them. So what are the ownership rules there? Isn't that crazy? Like when I ask people, like, do you know people who share passwords with friends for HBO? Or I say this through for Netflix. All of my students, all of my friends say, sure, of course we do. That's just standard practice. And you said it's borrow. It's not borrowing. It's actually illegal. It's actually a federal crime. It's not even close to legal. But here's the thing. HBO knows that you're borrowing these passwords. They can track you down. And they choose not to. They don't just tolerate. They actually encourage theft of their core content. How is that even possibly the case? Possible because HBO and Netflix are some of the most sophisticated and savvy businesses about ownership design. We all know that rocket engineering puts people on the moon, but few people realize how ownership engineering affects us all day long, every day. So what HBO is using in this context, the reason that they're actually encouraging people to share passwords, they're using an ownership strategy we call tolerated theft. Tolerated theft works for them. Because what they are trying to do, actually in the words of HBO's president, Richard Plepler, he said, what we're trying to do is build video addicts. So they could come after you, but instead, they want you to think that you're stealing just a little. It actually profits them as part of a long-term customer acquisition strategy. They actually write about this in some detail, strategies that savvy businesses are using in a Harvard Business Review article that's titled, Even Elon Musk Doesn't Care About Patents, Should You? And the point there is that savvy businesses have strategies like tolerated theft where they're re-engineering your experience of ownership for their profit. You write that the meek shall inherit very little, and you point to South Dakota as the new Switzerland. How has South Dakota become the go-to money haven for the super rich? What a wild place. I mean, when I think of South Dakota, I think of like the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally or maybe like Mount Rushmore. But if you're super rich, South Dakota is a very special place. It's where the wealthiest people, not the one percenters, but the one percent of the one percenters go to hide their money. It's a place that has created essentially a legal system that makes payment of taxation substantially optional for many kinds of taxes. It also makes fulfilling your responsibilities, for example, to pay former spouses or provide child support or pay off people you've injured in malpractice cases or business partners you've defrauded. It makes all that payment and all that responsibility largely optional. And because it's so attractive for avoiding responsibility and taxes, it's become, in recent years, the world's leading money haven. It actually crushes Switzerland and the Caymans. This is where the world's super wealthy go to hide their money. And most Americans don't realize that what we now have in this country is two actually separate systems for wealth transmission. The super concentration of wealth in a very small handful of families, the fact that today 60% of wealth in America is inherited, 60% is inherited not earned. And only 1% of families have 40% of total wealth. That doesn't happen through market forces. It isn't a fact of nature. It is results from a deliberate set of choices by states like South Dakota to create this 
basically optional taxation and responsibility system. They've created a way to create actually a new aristocracy in America. And I don't even mean that metaphorically. The name of the trusts that avoid state taxes in particular are called dynasty trusts. They're meant to create modern dynasties. For most of us, we actually have to pay our taxes and fulfill our responsibilities. If you drive a Honda and hit somebody, they can garnish your wages to pay off the claim. But if you have a trust set up in South Dakota and you're wealthy enough to hit them with your Lamborghini, you never have to pay. It's really something that the founders would have been appalled by. It's not something that's consistent with either a progressive vision of America, and it isn't consistent with a conservative vision of America equal either. It isn't consistent with a vision based on responsibility and, uh, you know, opportunity and working hard. What we've done in, what we've done in this country is to create an alternate legal system uh, through which people can basically create aristocratic dynasties, actually very much in tension with the founding principles of this country. And the ownership reason for this is that property in America is not defined by federal law. It's not defined by the Constitution. It's defined by individual states. So states like South Dakota can basically impoverish um, states where people actually want to live. States like uh, California or New York, Texas or Florida, where wealthy people live. The Chief Justice of that state Supreme Court said, while many people may find a way to fly over South Dakota, somehow their dollars find a way to land here. Is the money helping the people of the state? What's so galling about what South Dakota has done is that no one in South Dakota benefits. There isn't one road in South Dakota that gets paid by their ability to decrease the taxation paid to states where people actually live. Not one road gets paid, not one school book gets bought. The only people in South Dakota who benefit are the tiny handful of trust administration lawyers and bankers who wrote these laws, who update them every year, and who get fees for administering them. Uh, one state legislature said there probably aren't 100 people in the state who realize that they're creating a feudal aristocracy in America. But because of South Dakota is taking the lead, other states, Nevada in particular, Alaska, a handful of others, are racing to catch up with giveaways to the super wealthy. So we now have what's called a race to the bottom. States actually competing with each other for ever more elaborate giveaways that are sort of under the table, hidden in this parallel legal system for the super rich. That's fascinating. Let's go on to a, another rule, which is your home is your castle. You say your home is really not your castle. Right. So what we're, what we're going through here is um, uh, some of the ownership stories. I, I said at the beginning, there are only six of them. Uh, and it turns out that possession is one-tenth of the law if you're a savvy business owner. And it turns out that the meek shall not inherit very much if you're in the world of South Dakota um, dynasty trust. And now we're going to uh, your home is your castle. It turns out that your home, that's a very powerful feeling we have. That's my space. Keep out. But that notion of ownership is so powerful that it becomes a, a tool that's available for all sorts of uh, government and business businesses to sort of redefine what it means to have home in ways that may surprise some of your listeners. Um, so one of the, so when you say uh, my home is my castle, if you own a home, what you have is a sheet of paper. It's a two-dimensional deed. Um, which doesn't necessarily mean that anything is attached to your home. Like how much airspace above is attached, what resources below are attached, how much out from the side do you have? All of those questions are very much up for grabs. A hundred years ago when we first had air flight, um, landowners would send bills to the plane company and say, hey, you're, fl- you're trespassing over my land by flying up over overhead. And early on in America, we decided that at the flight of, of at the level of airplanes, 
uh, that wasn't part of what was attached to your land. That attachment only worked a certain ways up. Um, but today, we have the question about drones. So, for example, can somebody fly a drone above your land? And that's very much a live question because potentially they have cameras that look down on you. Uh, and potentially they also serve you know, to deliver pizza or Amazon boxes. So we're at a moment where, like any new resource, ownership of it is up for grabs. And ownership of the airspace above your house at the drone level, the so-called drone way, is very much contested today. And there's no natural or correct or right answer. All that you have is these six simple stories of ownership that everyone uses to fight about everything. And it's not just the airspace above. It's also all the resources below your land, the water, the oil, the gas. Um, do those belong to you? What if your neighbor uh, puts a, you know, drills a deeper well and puts in a more powerful pump and sucks the water away from your well? Can they do that? And the answer is, again, up for grabs. Uh, the specific answer for the well is, in much, in much of America, absolutely they can. You have all these wild examples in the book. What's your favorite? The, my favorite example actually is what motivated us to write the book. Uh, it was flying on an airplane, working on my laptop, and the person in front of me leaned back and squished my laptop. And I realized that that wedge of space behind the seat was an ownership story. It isn't governed by law, but it's very much up for grabs. Does that space belong to the person in front? Do you have a right to recline? Is the space attached to the seat because the button controls the space? Or does the space belong to the person in back for their needs? And for my laptop, well, my story is possession. I possess the space. Or first, I was there first. And what I realized was that that wedge of space was outside the law, but it was a conflict that each of us go through all the time whenever we fly. You, if we, and what happens is we all try to work it out. We try to be polite. We try to use good manners. And the hidden ownership story there is that what we're experiencing is a personal conflict. What I was experiencing with someone leaning into my lap turns out to be a highly engineered form of ownership that the airlines are using for their profit. In the same way that HBO was using tolerated theft uh, to build customers, airlines use a different, very advanced tool of ownership design, which we call strategic ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity uh, is present much more often in your life than you realize. And the way the airlines use ambiguity in that context is they deliberately keep it unclear who owns, who controls that wedge of space. They, they know that we're going to all fall back on politeness and good manners to sort it out. And when, when that happens, what it does is it lets them sell that wedge of space twice on every seat, on every flight, for you to recline and for my needs. So it's extremely profitable for the airlines. And the reason that these the conflicts are breaking out today over that wedge of space, and the stories of uh, planes getting grounded, the viral video some of your listeners may have seen of fights on, up in the air. So what the airlines have done is they squeeze the pitch, the distance between seats, down from 35 inches down to just 28 inches on some planes today. They've made that wedge of space a more valuable resource. And whenever any resource becomes more valuable, ownership is up for grabs. And they realize that by using ambiguity, they could sell that space twice. And they can make the business class seats up front more valuable. They create a market for business class by making economy, economy uh, uh, space sufficiently unpleasant. So for me, it was that experience of flying that made me realize how powerful these ownership stories are in shaping uh, every minute of our lives, every day, all day long, 
we're engaged in, in these ownership battles and we just don't see it. So for me, the aha moment was seeing that that conflict I was having on the airplane was actually an ownership battle. Uh, and it turns out there actually is a simple solution, actually, news you can use for your listeners, which is if you try to pay the person in front of you 20 bucks, that usually not to recline, that often <laughs> won't work. And if you say, just please don't recline, that won't work either. But what works three quarters of the time, according to one study, is if you offer to buy them a snack or a drink, they won't recline because then you guys are in it together. You're part of a community. And neither of you are realizing that the airlines are, are basically profiting from that deal. Uh, but that is actually a practical way to solve the problem. From your book, we see that you know, ownership rules seem to be changing at different times. Is there any advice you can give to the average person about how to make ownership rules work for them? Absolutely. So the key first is to understand that, it's, that ownership is not something distant and fancy and something for lawyers. This is such an important piece of what I actually try to tell my law students as well. And I said this earlier in our conversation, law is overrated. Ownership is up for grabs in your life all day long. It's the stories that kids are telling on the playground when they're fighting over the swing. It's nothing fancier for you as a grown-up. And this is true not just for really big issues like climate change, which we haven't talked about, which is an ownership battle, or wealth inequality, which more transparently is, uh, but it's very true on sort of uh, the employment, um, on what control you have over your job. So, for example, a lot of people have non-disclosure or non-compete agreements in their in their uh, in their contracts that people don't realize are not enforceable. But once you start to examine like every piece of your life, like how is it that um, you know people walk around you to the front of the Starbucks line uh, to pick up their drink? Well, they have the app. So Starbucks has engineered line waiting uh, to have basically two different visions of who's first in time: people who simply line up and wait, people who use the app, uh, and that engineering of lines was on all around you. Next time you're standing in line, if it's a long line, um, this may well be an entrepreneur who's actually being paid to wait in front of you. So for every day, every minute as you go through your day, once you start to notice it, it's very hard. You'll see um, the world in a very different way. Once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. Once you see how ownership really works, um, my hope is that your listeners, is that that's part of what empowers them to have the tools to be more effective advocates as, as parents um, but as, and as consumers uh, and also, I think, as citizens. I think it works at all those levels. Thanks, Michael. That's Professor Michael Heller of Columbia Law School. The book is Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.